Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. It is good to see everyone that is here. It's good to be able to get together and have our Bible study this morning. I know a lot of people are are traveling because of, you know, Independence Day and things like that. Also, um, a lot of us are running around like chickens with our heads cut off because Bible camp starts tomorrow, and a large portion of us are going up like right after services. If I had my way, our trailer would have already been hooked up this morning, and the kids could just eat snacks in the car. But apparently, that's not the most feasible thing. So Little Caesars Pizza has been ordered with the app, and I am picking it up at 1145. So we're going to still get out of here early. I got this. So, but... Um, it's good to definitely be here, and it's exciting, of course, you know, nation's birthday, getting together, um, you know, later this evening, we're going to have our church get together in the parking lot for those that are not up at Bible camp to blow some things up in the parking lot and eat some hamburgers. Um, also want to give a couple um, prayer requests. I talked to Evelyn Thompson yesterday, and um, she had to go into the doctor because of really high blood pressure issues, um, like over 200, she told me, so I know that's not good. Um, they got it under control now. She's back at home, um, but there was a death in her family, too, um, that she found out after the fact that she was already dealing with the blood pressure issues. So we want to keep um, the Thompson family in our prayers, especially um, Evelyn, as she's going through that difficult time. She wanted to call and tell me that she didn't think that she would be here today because of her over 200 blood pressure. I said, please just take a deep breath and settle down and rest like the doctor told you to, So, um, but keep her in our prayers. All right, well, we are in the Gospel of John. And if you're new to the class, what we've been trying to do week after week is let, of course, the Gospel of John stand on its own. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although they are all biographies of Jesus, each one of these Gospels tell a different angle about Jesus. They all mention a lot of the same, you know, events and things like that, but there's a teaching element to them, and they're designed to maybe further a certain purpose to a particular audience. For example, uh, I guess it was two years ago now, we were in the book of Matthew on Wednesday nights. You remember, we talked a lot about how Matthew is written to kind of prove to the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And if you're writing to a Jewish audience, what might you emphasize to a Jewish audience that you wouldn't emphasize to maybe a Greek audience? What's that? Okay, yeah, you would have a lot of references to the law because to a Jewish person, they would understand those. What else? They should have, yeah. What else? Matthew says a phrase over and over, and so it was fulfilled. What's he talking about? Prophecy, right? There's a lot of prophecies that are talked about there because that would mean a lot to a Jewish audience. Mark, I think, is written primarily to a Greek audience, and John, he's writing to a broader audience, I think, of Christians, but it's toward the end of the first century now, so you're decades removed from the time when Jesus was on this earth And you have a lot of people that maybe different false teachings have gained traction, um, ideas that maybe Jesus didn't come in the flesh and that. Also, you have second, third generation Christians. And with that, there's a lot of challenges because maybe your parents, they saw Jesus firsthand. They believed in him. They were there. They saw some miracles. But you didn't. Maybe you never, you know, we don't want to say it this way, but maybe you inherited your faith a little bit. And now you need to come to grips with that and understand who Jesus is. And there's a lot of people saying that maybe Jesus didn't really exist and all of that. So John is written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. It's designed to get us to believe. 
Key verse of the book, John 20, 30, and 31. Someone read it for the class. Out loud, preferably. John 20, 30, and 31. So John says, Jesus did a lot of signs. But these ones have been written down, have been recorded for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to try to get us to believe. And if we believe, we're going to have what? Life. That's key words to this book. Belief, signs, life, those are key words along with some others we've been talking about are important to understanding this book. The Gospel of John is designed to get us to believe because if you don't believe in Jesus, you cannot have life. And we've talked a lot about, too, that believing in Jesus encompasses coming to him, following him, obeying him, and all of that in the section we looked at last week. Um, With that, though, as we go through the book, we've seen that a lot of witnesses are presented And I think it's almost like a courtroom type scene in my mind, at least how I see it, where John says, I bring witness number one to the stand, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, what can you tell us about Jesus? And we talk about that. Witness number two, John the Baptist, we know, and so on. You have all these different witnesses to Jesus being that Messiah, being the Son of God. All right, well, we left off last week in John chapter 6. We talked about the feeding of the 5,000, and then we got into the section where Jesus walked on water, and then we get into this big discussion we talked we finished up last week where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Uh, it's kind of on the heels of him feeding the 5,000. After he feeds them, they go along to the other side of the sea, and the multitudes meet him there, and they come to Jesus, and they ask for another sign, but specifically, what kind of sign do they want? Food, right? Give us food from heaven. Rain, our father's got man in the wilderness, Where's our meal ticket, right? Rain down bread from heaven just like, you know, they did in the wilderness. And Jesus says, all right, you want bread out of heaven? I am the bread out of heaven. I am that living bread. You need to eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, and you will have eternal life. Is that entire section there we looked at last week in John chapter 6. But the conclusion of the whole thing I really think is found in that discussion between Peter and Jesus at the end of John chapter 6 where in verse 67, Jesus says to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life because he has the words of eternal life. Jesus provides eternal life because he has the words of eternal life. The reason we follow and obey Jesus is because his words give us eternal life. And that's what we consume, that's what we follow him, that's what we come to him and obey him and all of that. Because everything in this flesh doesn't profit anything, right? But that what is spiritual does. Don't seek, you know, physical bread out of heaven, but seek the living bread out of heaven, which is Jesus. And then as we concluded last week, we got into this strange plot that killed Jesus in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. And that's where we will pick up today. But as you remember, there is... Um, a feast going on in Jerusalem. They're, uh, they're heading that way for this feast. Jesus is up in Galilee. He doesn't want to go to Judea for what reason? Why? Yeah, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Yeah. So if he goes there, it's dangerous. It is interesting to kind of wrap our minds around this thought a little bit that Jesus being the eternal son of God and all of that and all this power and, and everything, yet still avoided situations like that where they would try to kill him. I mean, obviously, I don't understand and comprehend the full mind of God. But me, I'd be like, bring it, we'll go in there and just zap some people and they'll leave us alone and we'll keep preaching. Yeah, 
Everything had a certain time frame. Jesus had a purpose. We don't understand the eternal mind of God and his timetable and all of that. So anyway, he doesn't go there. And also, Jesus doesn't do things even that would be foolish from a human standpoint necessarily, too. And maybe endanger the people that are with him. But he chooses at first, at first, we're going to talk about it in a second, at first to not go to Judea because their people are going to try to kill him. But yet we find that some of his relatives, specifically his brothers, come up to him. And what do they encourage him to do? Go there. What are they trying to do? Get him killed. Maybe I never noticed that before till recently, but I mean, that's, that's a pretty big deal. His own brothers want to kill him. They're not, if you wanted to say, that, well, Jesus is just part of some kind of weird movement, and they said, convinced a whole bunch of people through brainwashing him. Look, his brothers didn't believe. In fact, it wasn't until later they believed. But here, they're trying to get him killed. Verse 5 says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Yes, Yvonne. Oh, probably, maybe. Um, and I think some of it's more embarrassment a little bit, too, because you got Jesus doing all these things, getting a lot of attention, bringing attention on the family, maybe, too. And this is all speculation a little bit, but if you are low-key, blue-collar worker in Galilee, and you're just trying to do your thing, you know, <laughs> mind your business, live your life. And all of a sudden, you got brother over here bringing all this drama on the family. I made a sign. Well, I didn't actually make it. I had Claire make it for me. For Bible camp that I'm going to put on the tree when you come into camp that says, drama-free zone. Right? Because I don't want a bunch of drama up there. His family didn't want a bunch of drama. But yet, Jesus brought it. So maybe that's why they wanted to kill him. I don't think that he, they necessarily wanted him to go in there and wipe them out. I think they were trying to trap him. But you can disagree with me. I'll let you. Um, but let, I want to think about something here, though, in verse 5. Because belief is the key to this book. For not even his brothers were believing in him. If you don't believe in Jesus, a response to even killing him or wanting him gone isn't necessarily surprising. Because you either believe in Jesus as Lord and follow him or you reject him. There isn't this in-between area here. These that aren't believing at this moment are, are against him at this time. So verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves, and I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things, he then stayed in Galilee. So you know, kind of what Shirley said earlier about his time frame and all of that, Jesus says, I can't go there right now because my time has not yet come. Looking backwards at this, we understand that he's probably talking about his time of his crucifixion and all of that. Those at that immediate time wouldn't have comprehended that, of course. They didn't know all about that yet. But Jesus hints at those things, you know, my, my death and that my time has not yet come. But he says, my time isn't coming, so I'm not going to go there yet. But then he says, your time is always opportune. And then he mentions a strange kind of paradox here. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. What's he talking about? 
okay? His brothers are going with the flow. He's stirring up trouble. What else you think? What, what about this idea here that your time is opportune? There's definitely a responsibility that's going to be placed on them when they do believe. What else do you think here? Yeah, if they would just accept him, if they would just believe they could be part of this, this world-changing movement here, they could be part of this system, they could be part of salvation. But he goes, look, right now it's a good time for you to go there. It's a good time for you to, to listen up. It's a good time for you to pay attention because the world can't hate you. They're not against you right now because I have this giant target on me, right? Jesus has this target on him because Jesus is going around and he's telling people that the world is doing evil things. And John likes to use the word world to talk about evil things, you know, not the planet necessarily. And it's kind of that contrast. And here he says, look, the world, I testify of it that its deeds, you know, are evil. When you go around telling people that they're doing evil things, you're not always popular. And he's been calling out people to repent, primarily religious leaders, too, like the Pharisees. And he's upsetting people wherever he goes. And because of that, they don't like him. They hate him. But they don't hate his brothers right now. They hate him because he testifies, keyword to the book, that its deeds are evil. This world is evil. Now, I believe God made a perfect creation. I believe God made, you know, everything right and all of that. But evil happens in this world. There's pain, there's suffering, there's abuse, there's neglect, there's hatred, there's racism, there's immorality, there's murder, all of that. That's out there. And it's also even in religious people, too, that are hypocritical and judgmental and greedy and selfish, manipulative, all of that, too. That's all out there. And Jesus preaches against all of that. And because of that, people don't like him. Thoughts or comments before we go on? Yeah, it hurts, huh? It hurts when you're totally wrong, because I know, huh? If it could be like you and me, it'd be okay. But no, it hurts sometimes, because there, you know, my wife, who's perfect, she'll, uh, I don't mean that jokingly, right? But I mean, she'll like say, you know, maybe you should do this. And I'll be like, yeah, you're right. Because it hurts, right? It kind of, it takes something, there's like a ligament that goes from here to my heart to my gut. And when I get called out on being wrong on something, it all twists and my body contorts. There's a, a physical contortion that happens at that moment. Like, because I'll, I'll, usually her answer is, you know, for me to behave more godly about something. And she'll say something like, well, did you pray about it? And I'll go, yeah. no, I didn't. Okay, but yeah, it hurts when you're called out on something. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? When you, when you fight against something that's ingrained in you from family line on, like you're talking about Jewish people, that hurts too. It's hard to go against that. You know, people make all sorts of sound effects when you go against what grandma said. You know, that kind of thing. I saw a hand back here, I thought. Maybe not. Because your grandma and I mentioned you? Okay, what? Yeah, you gotta, you got to be patient with people. And we, that's a whole other conversation for another time. But yeah, we, we should offer people the same patience, long-suffering, and, and time that we would want ourselves offered. And even too, I think sometimes we give, and I know that, the Jewish people here, the religious leaders especially, rejected Jesus and all of that, and 
rightly so, we should be upset that they did that. At the same time, I don't want, maybe cutting them some slack is the wrong terminology, but maybe empathize with the fact that we'd probably be the same way. It's really hard to go against upbringing, anything that we were ingrained in us from youth and all of that. And maybe that's why here these brothers didn't want to accept Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Go up to the feast yourselves, and I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. But then we find out he did go. So verse 10, it says, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself went up, not publicly as if it in secret. So he did go. And I'm going to talk about my modern day tabernacle up there in a second. Um, But so his disciples say, or his brothers say, hey, go on up to Judea there and make a big scene and, and come on in like triumphant entry and maybe everybody will kill you kind of thing. He says, no, my time has not yet come. But then he does roll in the town. He does. He goes in, though, in a more of a low-key kind of fashion. So he flies under the radar, and the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Because they wanted him to show up, and they knew that when he did show up, they could trap him and get him. But yet, he does go, but they can't find him. They're like, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man, and others saying, no, on the contrary. He leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, there's a lot of things to unpack here. First off, you probably have a note in your Bible already, but what's the feast that's going on in Jerusalem at this time? Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. I have a lisp, so I hate saying that word. But, you know, that idea. What's that feast commemorating? Okay. Yeah, why? Okay, I'm just... (laughs) But you're right. That's what it was. In the wilderness, they were living in temporary dwellings during the wilderness wanderings and all of that. And to commemorate that... They were commissioned to have this feast. And when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall and all that, one of the first things they did was reinstitute this feast. And what they would do is the Jewish people would make temporary shelters, tents, tabernacles, booths, whatever you want to call them, and dwell in them, you know, as a way to remember, you know, the time that their nation was out in the wilderness. Um, Maybe you take a family camping trip on Memorial Day to remember something, you know, that kind of thing. Here, this is like a modern-day example of one that might be made there in modern-day, you know, Jerusalem. But that's what they did. And they maybe make them out of leaves and whatever they had and that kind of stuff. And that was the feast that was going on. And a lot of people would be in town during this time. It would be expected that Jesus would be there too and that he would go there and be, uh, I mean, that's the norm. And... When he doesn't show up, they're looking for him because we thought he would be here, but he got there in secret. While they're there, everybody's talking about him. Everybody's talking about Jesus. And what are they saying about Jesus? Yeah, some saying good things about him. Some are saying bad things about him. What's the bad thing they're saying? Leading everybody astray. He's... 
Well, in other passages, we had some allusions to it, but that's, I'm sure that's being talked about. Like, I heard in this conversation, he told this woman at a well that he was the Messiah, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I had words getting out there. But I want to notice something here. Verse 13, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Look at this control these leaders among the religious people there had, where people are afraid to speak out about this man that they have questions about. They have questions about his teaching. They have questions about his signs and miracles. They have questions about some of the prophecies that people are claiming he's fulfilling. All of that, I'm sure. But they're afraid to talk openly about that. You know, we talk about abusive religious practices. I was listening to a podcast um, yesterday, actually, and I won't drop names of what I was talking about, but they were talking about the rise and fall of a, of a particular very large um, church and then some of the cultural dynamics and, um, you know, I don't want to say corporate, but like the way that it was structured in the community and all of that there that lended itself toward that unhealthy environment. And it models even kind of like the corporate world, too, that when you have an unhealthy culture in, a, let's say, a business, the same kind of thing happens. But they were talking about some of these um, religious leaders that were abusive, and I'm not, not sexually or physically abusive, but could be very much abusive in the way they treated people, making them feel bad, making them be afraid, where those within the structure of that organization, although they saw things going on that weren't good, that weren't healthy, that were bad, they were afraid to speak up out of fear of the ones at the top. And you see that happen. It can happen in a local congregation. It can happen in a, a, some kind of nonprofit organization. It can happen in a business. It can happen in a family where maybe you have individuals that are, have such a a, a rule on top of everybody, that they are controlling the entire narrative where people are afraid to even ask questions. That's what's going on there. And I'll tell you, it happens even within, within preacher circles and all that, too, where someone says, you know, I've been reading through this, and, and I have a question. Maybe I, they're not even pushing anything, but I have a question about this passage. But to ask that question means to be labeled. You're afraid. So it happens in behind closed doors. It happens in small groups and that kind of thing because people are afraid. Here, they were afraid of the Jews, so no one spoke openly of him. That's scary. Well, the, the, the podcast I was listening to were talking about people didn't want to be labeled not a team player. Yeah. And that one, which, you know, that was, so maybe it wasn't, and, and even nowadays, maybe you might get labeled something, and they're afraid of that. Here, like you mentioned that, you could be even killed, which is another one, but that's scary, and I, we need to always make sure that in our congregation, we welcome questions. We welcome discussion. We welcome challenging the status quo, because if we believe the Bible is true, it's going to hold up as true. And um, maybe our belief was wrong. Maybe someone else's belief is wrong. We don't. We, that's what the truth does. It, it convicts. But if we ever stifle dialogue, stifle questions, stifle even doubt, you know, and say, no, 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 
can't talk about that. That's, that gets scary. You just have to make everything into some kind of controversial political thing and censorship or something, right? Yeah, but we've been doing the same thing without algorithms for years. Um, where, okay, get, to get real detail with you, social media and everything like that operates, there's algorithms, okay, that based upon certain keywords and phrases, what things come to the top and so on. I'll give you examples with, even like I've noticed with our church stuff. If I'm posting a generic church post, maybe a graphic or an image or something like that, um, I can monitor how much it's viewed. If I post an event, boom, it's way down here. It's not viewed that much because Facebook wants me to pay for an ad to boost that event. I pay five bucks, all of a sudden everybody sees the Bible camp and now 10,000 people saw that ad because they have, it's all a business. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't care. But I'm just saying like, so what Shirley's talking about is there's this fear that if you post pro-Christian things or whatever, that it's hidden more. Probably is. However, let's get out of modern day examples of it and just think as a whole. The Jewish people here were kind of doing the same thing. Don't talk about that. You know what I mean? Over here. And we might do the same thing too. Don't talk about that. Don't ask that kind of question. So I don't want to get into a whole conspiracy of, oh, the internet's out to get us, but I think there's a lot of fear, and there are a lot of people, his disciples would have been hurt in this whole situation. Yes, Yvonne? Yeah, and it creates trust and honesty and, and all of that. You have to do that. I mean, if think about, let's remove religious doctrine out of it. How many times are people afraid to mention sins, to confess to one another? To say, hey, by the way, I struggle with this too. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. But I don't want to beat that up a little too much. Let's keep going here. So they, no one was speaking openly for fear of the Jews. That just kind of stood out to me, that, that manipulation, that abusiveness of the whole community there. But then verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. So he goes to where the people are like he does. At first, he kind of takes a low-key entrance into the uh, feast. But now, time has come. He goes up to the temple, and he starts to preach to the people there. That's what he does. Verse 15. Then the Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So they're shocked by this, because he wasn't down in their rabbinical schools in Jerusalem. He didn't study under some very talented and well-versed, you know, scribe or anything like that. He came from Joseph the carpenter's family up in Nazareth. And before, what did they say? Can anything good come out of Galilee, right? They're like, how does he know this stuff? They're impressed with this. Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This goes back to, in my mind, the same discussion we had in chapter 6 about the bread coming out of heaven, he and the Father's will being aligned, and all of that. When Jesus spoke, it was not of his own initiative. It was not just his own desires of what he taught. What he was teaching is heavenly sent from the Father. And this is important to note because if Jesus is the bread that comes down out of heaven, and if his words have eternal life, it's because his words do not originate in this realm. They originate in the heavens. They originate with God. 
That's why they are so significant. That's why it was so compelling to the people there too. Maybe they don't even know how to articulate it. They're saying, well, how, how does he know this? He's not that educated. Maybe it's more along the lines of, look, he's, he's laying it out here in a way we've never even thought of. It's on a whole nother level. I mean, when you see God's word broken down in a way and you start understanding, it seems like that too. You're like, wow, this is, this is neat. This is amazing. And they're like, how did this happen? Verse 17, if anyone, Jesus is still talking, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So not only does Jesus have this teaching that originates in the heavens, you too can understand and accept and receive this teaching if you humbly come to him. Don't seek your own glory, but the glory of Jesus. You'll find yourself having no unrighteousness in you either. And that's kind of the whole idea of the call to action here too. It's not just listen to Jesus. It's you too should accept this teaching. You too should obey this teaching. And you'll find that Jesus and the Father are one. There is no unrighteousness in him. And when you come to Jesus, you can be part of this too. But they didn't do it, did they? Historically, they didn't accept the teachings that came from the Father. Someone read, if you would, verses 19 through, uh, read verse through 21. 19 through 21, we'll discuss it. So look how quickly this crowd turns on him, too, a little bit. Jesus is in the temple. Jesus is preaching. They're amazed. How does he know this stuff? He's not that educated. He gives an explanation of why he sounds the way he sounds, and his explanation is, I'm, my teaching comes from heaven, which they don't like. And then he does what he does. And it's the same thing he talked about, verse 7. I testify of the world that its deeds are evil. That's what he's doing right now. He goes, let's talk now. He goes, Moses gave you law, and yet none of you keeps it. Why are you seeking to kill me? Why are you seeking to murder me? You're not law keepers. He's calling them hypocrites. He's going to give some more specifics about their hypocrisy here in a second. But the crowd didn't like it, first off. They go, well, you got a demon. When... When you don't know what else to do, you respond, you tell somebody they're the devil. Uh, that's kind of what their go-to response is, right? Um, they say, you have a demon, because no one said they wanted to kill you. What were they all thinking, though? We got to kill this guy. Think about it. That's what a lot of them were thinking already. We know that because chapter 7, verse 1, it says the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus knows that. But they haven't said it out loud in front of him maybe yet. But Jesus knows. So they go, you have a demon. None of us said anything, Jesus, about killing you. I mean, they're wrapping chains around their hands and pounding brass knuckles, but they didn't. I know they didn't have those, but you know what I'm saying. But they never actually said it out loud. Jesus knows. And he goes, they go, you must have a demon. We didn't say this. Jesus goes, look, I did one deed, and you all marvel. I came in here and just preached, and you all marvel. And he goes, for this reason, 
Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. You know, it started with Abraham. He goes, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, you are angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Remember back when they first got really angry at Jesus? What did he do? He walked up to that man who was there by the pool and told him to get up and walk, and then he said something specifically that really made them mad. Yeah, carry your bed, pick up your bed and leave kind of thing. And that all got this going. So Jesus shows back up, he's preaching, and they go, all right, we got to still kill him. He goes, I did one thing. One thing. I told a guy to pick up his bed, and I did it on the Sabbath. And you're going to try to kill me over that? He goes, look, you can circumcise on the Sabbath, and you have no problem with that. But if I heal an entire person on the Sabbath, you want to kill me. Now, of course, there's a little bit of a play on the actions involved with circumcision versus the actions that Jesus did. We won't get too graphic with it, but um, circumcision is just a tiny action versus, but that could happen there on Sabbath. It doesn't even help um, heal an entire person or whatever, but Jesus here healed an entire man on the Sabbath, and they don't like it. And in verse 24, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Back up for a second and take a look at how you're viewing things. Take a look at how you're thinking and ask yourself, are you discerning this situation properly? Or are you looking with tunnel vision at this fact that I did one thing on a Sabbath day that you didn't like, which was a good thing, by the way, that God would want me to do because my will's with the Father and all of that. He goes, are you just looking at it on the surface or are you actually judging righteously? We sometimes are guilty of the same thing. We will just look at the surface of something and not actually take the time to consider, to think, to contemplate, to love and all of that. And we draw a very judgmental conclusion that isn't based in righteousness. They go, we saw you command somebody to work on the Sabbath. Okay. Did Jesus tell somebody to work on the Sabbath? Did Jesus tell somebody to work on the Sabbath? You might have not been here for it. Kind of. He told the guy to pick up his bed. Right? But at a deeper level, what did Jesus do on the Sabbath? He healed somebody. Showing himself to be the Messiah. Curing a man of an ailment that's plagued him his entire life, and now a man can walk. But all they're looking at is this narrow appearance factor of, well, you were telling somebody to do something on the Sabbath, and now we want to kill you. Are they judging righteously? No. That's unrighteous judgment. They are only seeing what they want to see. You know, it'd be like, if you saw me like I'm at, I, I can't think of an example, but okay, you see Cliff's car out front of a bar downtown, you know it's my truck because I got the camp golf cart in it right now, and you're like, okay, Cliff's there at this bar, he must be drinking, he must be a drunk, I knew it all along that that guy's the biggest hypocrite, that's why he's down there, 
You don't see the fact that I'm not actually doing this. It would be totally awesome if I was. But then I'm in the back, and I actually drain one of their coolers, fill it up with water, and I'm baptizing every drunkard back there, okay? Right? You're like, yeah, but you're in a bar. Cliff, you shouldn't go in there because you're giving the appearance of evil, Cliff. People are going to think you're a drunk. And you know what? I heard that while you were in there, you also bought a Coke. So now you're supporting their establishment. And what if those people there think you're condoning their actions? Yeah, you might be back there baptizing people in a, in a hollowed-out Budweiser cooler, but, yeah, you really shouldn't. You know, that's the kind of the window here. That's what they're doing. They're, which would be totally cool, by the way, if I could get inroads and baptizing people in bars. That'd be awesome. Uh, but here Jesus is doing something that was good, but all they saw was Sabbath violator. He broke the Sabbath. He healed somebody. Yeah, but he did it on the Sabbath. Yeah, but you circumcised on the Sabbath. Not a big deal. But he, Jesus did this on the Sabbath, right? I mean, it's so hypocritical. It's so false. And all they're doing is judging based upon appearance, and they're not judging with righteous judgment. Thoughts or comments? Well, I'm glad you're encouraging other people to buy you alcohol. <laughs> we'll have a talk with you afterwards, Shirley. All right. But, I mean... Yeah, see what they're doing here. And I don't want to get on these all the broad things about Shirley buying rum for rum cake. But um, I want to talk about the text of John. Here, they are only focused on what they want to see. And sometimes we do that. We only want to see Jesus doing one thing. We only want to see Christianity in one way and not actually seeing the whole of it too. That's not righteous judgment we got to make sure that with, when we look at people, we judge righteously. When we look at situations, we judge righteously. I've seen people do the same thing when it comes to the church a little bit, where one experience here is how they characterize the entire whole of Christianity. Judge with righteous judgment. You guys are violent. You'll circumcise on the Sabbath. No, we're not going to deal with that. We're going to see what we want to see, argue with what we want to argue, and talk about what we want to talk about. Yeah, yes. It is. It is wrong. Well, we're going to have to, let's look at a couple more verses, and then we'll close out and have our break before worship time. Um, it says, so, oops, I lost my place right here. Okay, verse 25. So some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? They're like, Why, isn't this the guy you want to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? And I love the crowd here. So they're watching all this unfold, and they're thinking, oh, they're going to get that Jesus. They're going to get him. And then they're like, wait a second. Jesus is talking to them, and they don't know how to respond. He's shutting down the people that always have an answer. He's, he's negating all the arguments to the people that were the skilled People had argumentation. They go, maybe he is the Jesus. Maybe they know that he's your Christ. I love that. So because of the fact that they responded in that way, the crowd is now coming to the conclusion that maybe they know something they don't know. And so the people over here, the religious leaders, are going, no, 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 don't follow him. And they go, maybe they secretly know he's the Christ. I just love how that all unfolds. But verse 27, however, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. So they still have their doubts. They go, look, we know where he's from. 
he's from Galilee. But they go, I thought we're not supposed to know where he's from. So they still have their doubts, and they're still working through this. We're going to have to stop right there. I'll lead us in a prayer, and then we'll have our break before worship time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus, for the fact that he teaches us to view things righteously, that he has the words of eternal life. May we follow them, obey them, and teach them to others. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. All right, well, you are dismissed right now. Be sure to greet people, visit with people, and we will come back in here in 15 minutes for our worship time. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.